listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So Jeff, did you get your steps in today? <laughs> no, I'm still working on my steps. Good. Well, we've got five to cover today. We have five steps today that we're going to cover. It's our, it's our once a month here. So um, today we're going to talk about point of view or POV, whichever you want to call, frame it. POV in five steps, point of view in five steps. Pressure's on me to deliver. So I've been thinking about this. I gave you the outline 30 seconds ago, so you've had no chance to react to it. It's like a stand on the floor of Congress or something where they never give you any information. Right? <laughs> well, you know, how many episodes have we done? I'm kind of used to this. It's You're kind of used to me not delivering an outline. Before. It's okay. It's yeah, okay. Well, you know how I roll. I kind of, I kind of roll in the moment a lot. So, yeah. But there is a plan. So POV in five steps, and this was your advice, and so I will share it, is I didn't take this narrowly in the sense of like, how do you build a point of view with the language you're going to put on a web page, let's say. You know, you know, what are you going to do in the next three months? I'd looked at it more kind of like overarching over time, sort of the idea of like, how do you build a point of view over the course of a few years or more? How do you build a point of view that's really lasting and compelling? So it's sort of a, I guess, an iterative five steps or something. I don't know if it's, when we're all done, you might be like, those weren't five steps. That was a thousand steps. I don't know. But. So let's take a step back. Okay. And Does before, that count as a step if we go backwards? Does that, <laughs> does that make it six steps? Like one back, six forward? That's right. Okay. One go step ahead. back, Sorry. five steps forward. And maybe talk uh, for a couple of minutes about what is a point of view and why it's important to affirm? Oh man, now you totally put me on the spot because I didn't even didn't even go there, but it's so obvious, right? You know, that, that we need to go there. Um, not that it's well, obvious. Let me let me interject something. Yeah. Then. I believe the point of view is, I won't say it's the number one, but it's in the top three critical success factors, I think, for differentiation of a of a professional service firm. Because to me, point of view is the tip of the spear of building a brand's relevance. Yeah. And if you don't have a point of view that is sharp, cutting, differentiated, relevant, and applicable in a business sense, no matter what you do from a marketing perspective, you're not going to stand out. Yeah. Buyers of professional services firms want to have conversations with consultants, accountants, architects, I would say even B2B SaaS companies and how they design their problem with a strong point of view on how to address a given problem. And they want to hear it. They'll decide, is it relevant or is it not? Do they agree with you or do they not? But the starting point for a conversation is a point of view on a problem. Yeah, I agree 100%. There's a couple of things in there I want to pull out. I think your comment on brand relevance is a really, really important one. And your comment on it being sort of the anchor point for differentiation. What A client asked me the other day, and, and, and we'll write a companion article on this soon. He said, Jason, what's the difference between a POV and a UVP? Point of view and a unique value proposition. And as I thought about it, I'm like, well, to some extent, the POV is tucked inside the UVP, right? You know, your view on the world is an element of differentiation, but it's not the only 
thing that might differentiate your firm from someone else. And the really interesting thing about a point of view over time, and we'll talk about this a little bit in the five steps, is that if you really land on a compelling point of view, it not only draws clients to you, it also draws imitators to you. So people start to adopt your point of view and take it to market alongside of you. So now all of a sudden you're challenged with you know, differentiating your point of view from someone else who's adopted your point of view. And so now your point of view has to change, right? So that's kind of part of why this is a multi-year look at this thing. And so as a result, like you end up having to have a unique value proposition as well, because to some extent, the point of view is one piece of that story. Because there's going to come a point in time when your point of view becomes pervasive and she's really good at it. And now you're sort of making the case for why you as the, the person who codified it in the first place should be the firm that's hired to solve the problem, which is kind of a strange thing to wrap your head around. So I thought your synopsis was really good. And I agree with you that, that it's, it, it is, it is I'll use your phrase from our, our pre-discussion. It's kind of like a flashpoint, right? It's kind of like, it's kind of like the thing that, that gets a conversation going and gets people excited to, to have a conversation with you because they're like, wow, that's a different way of seeing the world. Or maybe it's a way that, that I see it as well. It could be a little bit of both, right? I don't know. What else should we cover in the setup? Why else does it matter? I mean, to your point, differentiation, separation, separates you. It helps you demand premium fees frequently. You've discovered and codified a better way to solve a burning problem for a client, and they want to pay more for that solution because that solution is better, more elegant, more effective, right? Those are all things that are good. I think there's like a firm level point of view frequently. Uh, you know, the firm has to have a point of view on you know, the world. And then frequently individual practices have to have their own points of view, especially if those practices are maybe industry clustered or functionally clustered or problem clustered, however they're clustered. You know, we've talked about solutions architecture so much the last, last six months and our brand breakdowns and other things. And so I think these steps are sort of applicable to any one of those levels, no matter where you're dealing with it. So if you're saying we need a point of view for this practice, Okay, well then let's work, work through that. We need a point of view for our entire firm. We'll work through that as well. So I think the steps work in either in either regard. If that makes sense, you raise a good point. The point of view from an overarching firm perspective and a practice perspective may differ. What you want to make sure that you're avoiding is outright conflict. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say the same thing. It's like, it's kind of like, again, our pre-discussion we were having, which is off the record, but like, that's what you want to avoid, that notion of conflict. And a lot of times I, I always feel like if we do it really, really well, the two dovetail each other, right? Like the master firm point of view logically leads you right into the practice point of view and it feels like an elegant segue. And and when, when you somehow nail that, it, it's a really wonderful thing. It doesn't always happen to your point. I think also sometimes to your point, if there is conflict, it makes you kind of go, well, does that practice belong here? Like if that practice, you know, I mean, like maybe we shouldn't even be in this business. Why are we in this business, right? I think so. that's a great point. You have to say, why is that happening and understand it? Because you yeah. can't let it fester unless that point of view that is conflicting with the, the broader firm view is a canary in the coal mine, right? Yeah. It's that point of view an incredible insight that is asking you to rethink your former point of view, mm -hmm. or is it, you know, some kind of virus that has penetrated the system? <laughs> <laughs> and I the can white think a couple of those floating around right now, you and I like to talk about, 
But yeah, it's funny as you're saying that. That's how I kind of I remember our conversation with West Monroe. That was sort of my takeaway from that conversation. Is I felt like the practice point of view was was taking over the firm wide point of view because it was so compelling and so electric. And you're like, wow, yeah, that's a great way of looking at the world. So that's how I took that. I don't know if that's true or not. All right, well, why don't we do the five steps? We took one step back. We got to get six forward, so we're going to skip one. But we'll do a skip and then four steps. So step one, you know, I'll, I'll start really just assess the current state. Like, I think the first thing you have to do whenever you start to ask yourself, do we have a compelling point of view for this practice or the firm or wherever level you're functioning at is kind of take stock of what you have right now before you charge ahead and do anything. So I wrote an article and I, I won't go through all the details. So that's a podcast in and of itself. But I wrote an article a few years ago and I called it seven elements of a compelling point of view. And it was sort of a, a litmus test you could use to look at and say, well, there's seven things here. And, and when we're going to market, are we doing these pretty consistently or are we, are we hitting all seven? Or are we hitting only two? I'll point out a couple of them, not all seven in the interest of time. But you know, the biggest thing that you and I've talked a lot about is this idea that you know, a great point of view attracts and rejects. So that's like litmus test number one. If you feel like what you have to say is something that just about everybody would nod their head to and no one would ever feel alienated, then you probably don't really have something too compelling because to some extent, there are people that you kind of would expect to walk, to walk away and say, this is not for me. And the second one I'll point to is, is just solves for real burning problems with the two of the seven that I pulled out. Because I think you and I have also talked so much about how frequently practices are solutions in search of problems. And so the point of view needs to cut to the heart of like, what are the problems? There's nothing that irks me more. And we've done this in our brand breakdowns. When you see firms say things like, we help clients struggle with their most pressing challenges or whatever. But what are those pressing challenges? You, know, you tell the market, you know, especially when you find that on a practice page, you know, where it's maybe an industry page, it's even more frustrating. So we can link out to that article. I don't want to spend a lot of our time there. But I think it's important to, to, to get a litmus test of where you are and figure out what's missing. So then as you go forward, you know, you're, you're, you're solving for your holes to some extent, at least. I want to add to what you said. In my experience, a point of view is it, it's going to take work to draw out sometimes because firms can be so immersed in their perspective that they may not actually be able to see it as a point of view. And that's an important role that people like you and I play as outsiders of, of coming in and mining, if you will, to find these gems. But what firms need to understand that that point of view is going to grow out of a combination of things. And, and one of the most important things is going to be the culture of, of your firm, how you think about how you attack problems, um, how you talk about problems, your core capabilities. And we've talked about core capabilities, a real understanding of what do you do incredibly well and apply those to a given situation. And then ultimately, what's the value that you're going to deliver? And you have to, you know, you have to be looking at those three all the time because they are going to inform what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. Out of what you said, I want to pull out one sequence and because it leads us to the perfect segue into the next step. Because there was a sequence in there where you said something on the line along the lines of sometimes you don't really 
recognize what your point of view even really is. You don't even recognize the things that are unconventional wisdom. And so I, I think it's like, it leads perfectly into the second step, which to me is all about insights gathering. It's all about reaching out into the marketplace and understanding what is conventional wisdom on how this, how this problem is solved. What is the prevailing approach to solving this? How big is the problem? How pervasive is it? How many organizations are trying to solve it? Why are current solutions falling short? So it's it's sort of stepping back from the, the face of the client service and the client delivery you do every day and saying, okay, if we're going to think about what our point of view is on this client sector or this problem, we've got to get outside of our own heads and outside of our own walls frequently. Now, usually that involves research. So there's certainly some secondary research, right? You can certainly do secondary research to see what other firms are saying in that space. Ideally, there's some primary research, a combination of quantitative and qualitative research. But sometimes it's just wisdom. You know, I mean, I, I kind of took to when you and I were talking about it, to me, it's earned wisdom sometimes. You just you know, the practice leader, you sit down with them and you spend a couple hours in a working session and it becomes pretty clear what their perspective is on their their work from their years having done it. Now, the only risk there is that you and I talk about is the sample size may be too small, you know, and that risk that I've always joked about that. What if you don't work with any top performers? You don't even know it. You've <laughs> never seen top performers, even though you thought you had, you don't, you don't know. So I'll pause. I'll throw a couple things at people real quick, just to kind of like to think about. So when you think about the insights gathering phase, I do think research underpins this. And you, that's why I framed it that way. You can look at research as a secondary task, a quantitative, qualitative, in-depth, primary research exercise, or you can look at it as my life's work is the process of gathering research, right? Insights gathering over time. But I will say, if you stop and think about the people that we've had on this podcast and some of the people that have represented some of the some of the most game-changing insights, usually it's coming out of out of original primary quantitative qualitative research. Fred Reichel, the Net Promoter System, Bat Dixon and the Challenger Sale, and Jolt. You know, um, Rita McGrath and Rita McGrath. I, I mean, think about Rita McGrath. We didn't yeah. discuss this, but my impression of Rita McGrath is she took Michael Porter on head to head and just said, hey, conventional wisdom around strategy has been this way for decades to some degree. Yep. And she said, that just is not realistic. Yeah. I, that may not be true, but that's my impression is she was taking Porter on head to head. And to your point, I love the way you frame that because it's like, say, conventional wisdom doesn't seem right to me. Let me go study it and find out what I learn, you know? And I think that was a lot of what Dixon talked about with Jolt, right? Just conventional wisdom that indecision is caused by this fear of the unknown, or I can't remember exactly the frameworks, but, and oh, by the way, there's a whole other reason that, that clients don't make decisions and it's got nothing to do with what you thought, right? So it sort of is, comes out of curiosity on some level. So anyway, that's step two. And again, I'm not going into into, into in-depth you know, detail in terms of how to do this type of research. I know we've had Bob Bidet on the podcast in the past. There's a great episode on that. He talks a lot about the notion of in-depth client case studies, which are sort of qualitative exercises. So, you know, discovery-driven conversations with clients. And really what you're trying to get at there is like, how do they solve problems in a better way? You're looking for underneath the hood, understand how the best organizations are solving the, the most pressing problems you want to solve. Which is why, you know, I even talked about this, like um, in one of our Behind the Headlines episodes, that the idea that best practices aren't invented, they're usually discovered. So it's not like consultants come in and lay the groundwork for what companies should be doing. Usually they're telling them what their peers are already doing. Sarah, that was a different conversation. The key there, there's two. 
One is falling in love with the problem, as we've talked before, and client centricity. Yes. You need to understand who your client is. You need to understand the types of issues that they have, and you need to just relentlessly pursue solving those issues in different ways. And you need to, to break your thinking over and over and over again. And you could make the argument that that's step zero. <laughs> that's funny as I was doing this, this is our third or fourth episode in the five-step series. And I was like, you could make the argument that step one of everything is is, is understand your ideal client, right? Like, it's like, you know, it's like, so it's almost like a, a written that that needs to be there. So it's like, I, I took it out for that reason because I'm like, we'd say, yeah, we'd say that every time. So I 100% agree with you. Like, it's like, that's got to be the very first thing you understand. Because if you don't understand that, then how are you building a point of view around anything? Now, before we jump to step three, I want to just throw out some examples of guests we've had that have used more of a wisdom approach. And and the best one I can think of is, is Blair Enns with Women Without Pitching. You think about all of his work around pricing and pricing creativity. And, and, and really, that's not work that he did through primary research. It's more his intense understanding of his ideal client built over 25 years and a in-depth look at all of the pricing literature and then taking this kind of like world of knowledge and then just going whoop, collapsing it into context that's super usable for his ideal client. So I, I wanted to say that only because I don't want people to think like the only way to do this is to go invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in a big primary research study with millions of data points or whatever. I don't want people to take that away. I don't think that's the only way to get to a, a compelling point of view. Are you saying it's, you can't have a point anyway. of view unless you've been around for 25 years? Well, it's funny because I almost wrote that, Jeff, and I knew you'd attack it. You're like, how do I collapse up to five, Jason? <laughs> we actually so, did a podcast on that, didn't we? I, I'm sure we did. Like consolidating seven years into two or something, two something, or something like yeah. that. I, I think we did do something like that. No, I'm not saying that at all. I, In fact, I think that it's a way to do it though, right? But, but you think about like, what did Matt Dixon do? He didn't know anything about client indecision, but he studied it. So in some ways, I think I think that that research makes up for wisdom you, that you may, may not have gained yet, or or it could. Although sometimes wisdom can get in the way of that, right? Yes, it can. So I think it's funny that you knew I was going to attack you on that. <laughs> I, I, well, I thought about writing that, and they're saying that, and I was like, no, he's gonna he's gonna be all over that. Say, Jason, why would you want to wait forever? It's a terrible idea, which is also true. Terrible. Yeah. If your strategy is is you know is the passage of time, you're in trouble. So I only throw <laughs> throw that out to give those young firms hope. I think there's more than hope for the young firms, in, in that like a lot of times it's their you know looking at the problem from a different lens for the first time that makes all the difference. And that was so much of what if you go all the way back to that the, the foundational thinking, the challenger sales. So much of what was new in there was because it was not like seasoned sales consultants. Like they came at it from a new point of view and a new lens. And so they had a different take on what was going on than anybody else. So sometimes novelty is. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. All right. So step three, I'm trying to keep us on schedule here. Step three 
synthesize, you know, so you've done this research gathering process, however you've chosen to do it, whether you're trying to call it, codify the knowledge of, a, of an expert that's been in the, in the sector for years and years and years, or you've done some combination of quantitative and qualitative research. You're just trying to identify best practices as we've talked about. You know, what do the orgs that solve this problem best do differently? What people do they have on the team? What are their mindsets? What are their behaviors? What are their processes? What are their technologies do they use? Why are they doing it this way? How are they doing it this way, right? So it's so much of this is all about trying to understand what's going on and reading between the lines sometimes. Seeing, you know, even though you've got data, you might look at the data and you might look at it sideways and say, well, what does that data really mean? What's that telling us? Now I'm working with a client on a content strategy right now. And one of the things we're looking at is we have a, an opportunity grid that we've built and we've got this one content opportunity sitting in the, in the top left corner in a place where you would say you shouldn't go after that topic. But I just keep going back to it and saying, I think the data is misleading. I think that clients are overconfident here and it's an opportunity because they're overconfident. They don't, they don't really recognize how big the problem is. And so sometimes you have to kind of look beyond it. So anyway, step three is all about synthesizing what's going on. I think a great example here, and, and also you know, in step three, I always say too, it's you're, you're trying to get permission to share examples too, because you did some qualitative research. You want to get permission from the companies that you are saying are best practices to talk about them publicly, to get their permission to share them as best practices. And the example I'll give on that is is the, the, the great folks we had from Smart Technologies on the podcast. We found them from an HBR article that Brett Adamson at CEB wrote on collapsing sales and marketing. And that was their example of how to do this a better way. You know, stop trying to get sales and marketing to align better, just blow them up. That was the point of view. And that was the example. So in step three, you're trying to, you're trying to get at the best practices. And of course, you're trying to get permission to talk about those best practices externally, which is really important because it's not always easy. So let me pause. You said you're trying to get permission. Mm -hmm. Say more about that. And, and, and why do I need permission? Well, you know, so it's a great question. A lot of times, you know, I learned a lot about this from Bob over the years. He's been on the podcast. A lot of times that maybe it's they're, they're your client. So you're working with them directly to solve this problem and you're doing it in a way that's confidential, right? And they hired you confidentially to solve the problem. So you have to get their permission to talk about it externally. Oh, I see. I'm Other sorry. times if you're doing- I'm sorry. I, mis I misunderstood yeah. what you said. Get permission I'm from sorry. the client to talk about the client. Yeah. I thought you yes. meant permission to share a unique point of view in the market. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I sorry. Like, oh. No wonder you looked at me like I was crazy. Why are you talking about? So, yeah. So, yeah. So, so sometimes, it's, sometimes it's that. Other times it's that qualitative research that you're doing. Like, you know, I know on our latest thought leadership study we did, we had a couple hundred people respond to a quantitative survey. And then we had seven or eight qualitative conversations that Alan Alper from the day thought leadership partners did. And we didn't necessarily, in that case, have their permission to, to share what they said named. All we had permission to do was just to share, you know, CIO of X, of, of X type of company. Obviously, you want to get beyond that whenever you can. You want to have real world examples when you finally get to market with what you're going to do from a thought leadership perspective. And this is the ideal time to do it. And Bob's advice has always run true for me, which is, you know, you're asking the client or you're asking the person that you studied to let you share them as a best practices example. And People are, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's how the smart technologies folks ended up in that HBR article and, you know, and, in our, and eventually on our podcast was Brett says, what you're doing is really interesting. Can we talk about it? Yeah, sounds great. We'd love to be recognized as a best practices example. Who doesn't want to be seen that way, right? So it's not a case study. It's, it's you know, best practices. All right. So 
Step four is just publish, right? Like at some level, you've got to get your thinking into the marketplace. So you've done your research, you've synthesized what you think it means. Now you have to tell your story. And the best thing I'll say here is just, is I think your goal is to simplify the language as much as you possibly can. You might want to build a model that describes what's going on, but if anything, you want to just find plain English. You want to speak, you want to take complex business topics and make them just understandable to just about anybody and then publish some type of foundational thinking on it. It doesn't have to be a book. I mean, a lot of the examples we've given so far are books. It doesn't have to be a white paper. It could be a video. It could be a webinar. It could be a manifesto. One of the examples that I really liked was Tercera's third wave of the cloud piece, which is sort of the foundation. I don't know if this is totally true. Michelle Swan, when she was on, I don't know, I don't know that we got her to say this, but I kind, of, I kind of feel like that whole firm was born out of a point of view, that it's like the third wave of the cloud is a thing. And we're going to build a whole investment firm around that whole belief system. And that may or may not be true, but it's really well codified in the manifesto that that the founder wrote. So I really like that one a lot. And so you start with your foundational thinking and then, and then go deeper. Once you publish that foundational thinking, it doesn't stop. You have to kind of keep going down the rabbit hole, right? You have to keep you know producing more thinking, going beneath that layer to really understand what's going on. And we, you know, one of our main you know, big clients over the years has been a consulting firm called TBM, and their point of view is around speed wins. And we've written tons of stuff about how to accelerate things, how to make an organization move faster. How do you move faster? There's a whole you know, layers beneath that. But step four is that. When you shared this step, publish, I thought, well, we'll yep. just move through that, right? Because that's what everybody thinks, right? You just publish it. That's just marketing content. Just just published it. Write a blog. Of, of the five steps, to me, this is the one that, I don't know that it's fair to say the hardest, but it's incredibly critical. And I see firms wrestle at this point as much as any other step. Because in their mind, they have this great thinking, right? It, it's clear in their mind. But when they try to extract it and get it down into print, it comes out and it's so discombobulated. Yep. And, you know, as my high school English teacher would say, writing refines your thinking. It structures your thinking. So this is such a critical step for making that thinking concrete and actionable. Otherwise, firms just get caught in the ethereal. You're 100% right. You know, I, I, I keep coming back to the challenger sale example, unfortunately, which I don't, I hate using the same example over and over again. But the reason I use it, that's why I said in the beginning of this, your, your goal is to simplify things as much as possible. And if you ask most people about what the essence of the challenger sale is, the, the answer they'll give you is that there's a certain type of seller that is a challenger who is a more effective seller than everybody else. That's actually not really true. Actually, when you really read the book at depth, you suddenly realize that no, 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 they codify four different types of selling behaviors. And it just so happens the most effective salespeople in that window had higher, more behaviors of the challenger category. Much more nuanced, right? But the reality is when you simplify the language and you say that there's a challenger, people get it. It's like the light bulb goes off. But if you tell them what I just said, they're like, what the hell? What are you talking about? I don't know. Okay, whatever. And they eyes glaze over and they walk away. You know, <laughs> so, so it's like, I love that you pointed out how important it is and how, you know, our job, or at least our job as as a as an agency, is to help clients get to that level of simplicity if we can, because that's when the, the client, the market hears it, when they, when they and they digest it. 
until you get to that, it's you know nobody. You know, I mean, you heard, we heard Dixon talk about it, right? You know, his goal to get the jolt because he wanted to have an acronym to explain, you know, what, just so he can articulate what's going on. All right, more comments on step four, or, or should we push ahead to step five here? I know I'm going super fast, and it's probably unfair to you and listeners, but push ahead. Lot to bite off. All right, so step five is refine, you know, and and I, and I put refine in that I feel like if you really build a compelling point of view then I think we talked about this earlier, it attracts imitators, right? So people are going to start, other organizations are going to say, wow, that's a really great way of looking at the world. We can do it that way too. You know, and we heard this from Fred Reichelt a little bit, this idea of like, okay, so nobody could really measure customer loyalty very well or understand what it meant. So we came up with a better way and it was the net promoter score. And then everybody's, every company on the planet started using net promoter score, but they started doing it all wrong. And then other firms started like selling services to help you, you know, calculate your net promoter yeah. score and they're doing it wrong. So then it's like, okay, now the point of view has to evolve. It's like, okay, you, you kind of missed the point. You got the first step, which was like, okay, measure customer satisfaction. It's important. Likely to refer, it's important. But now you're you know, screwing up all the behaviors and all the things that need to happen inside your organizations. So now we have to step back. And so this, then, he, then he reframed it as the net promoter system to say, well, it's not just a score, it's a system. It's a lot of different things you have to do. And so I think the act of refining is something that if you've found a really compelling point of view, it's going to get you know both attacked and adopted over time by your peers, by your customers. So you have to refine it over time to continue to make it, to, to keep it relevant um, and essentially keep your firm in that space you described at the very beginning, differentiated, a leader margin, you know, higher margins off of it, that kind of stuff. I love that. It's going to be attacked and adopted. What a great litmus test or strong yeah, point of view. Be? You know, a firm should ask themselves, is this point of view being attacked and is it being adopted? I love that. I think I may quote you on that. That'd be the first time you've ever quoted me on anything. That's not true. Baptism. That's not true. I That's know, not true. Teasing. Yeah. I want to I want to um, add something to to what you said that I, I have found yeah. to be really relevant in in my life as as a CMO and and as a a consultant. Firms fall into this trap of not necessarily refining but changing their messages to the market because inside the organization they get tired of hearing the point of view yep. themselves. So they're like, yep. well, we already talked about that. Let's change. Let's do something else because they, they get bored with their point of view. I always tell my clients, the moment that you get start getting bored with your point of view is when the market is just beginning to hear the yep. message. So don't change for the sake of change or out of boredom because a lot of the hard work to get to that point will have been wasted. And that is wonderful advice. And it's funny, you know, I think we've been blessed on this show to have some really great thinkers on, people with really compelling points of view that have changed the business world dramatically over the last two or three decades. And I think after every time we do those interviews, I think what you and I have both both remarked on is how on point those guests were every time. It was like we, we saw them coming back to the same stories, the same conversations, the same talking points that we saw them doing other other things. And I think it's just what you just said. It's that they, they mastered that, well, if I want this point of view to get traction and get heard and get remembered, to some extent, I have to be a little redundant because otherwise no one's ever going to hear it and no one's ever going to internalize it. So I love that you took us there because I think it's like, and it, we all we all fall victim to it. 
we all do that, you know, and I'm probably, I'm sure I've done it at Rattleback. I know I've done it, you know, as, as an agency. I know I've done it. In fact, in preparing for this episode, I was going back through old things I'd written and I kind of stumbled upon this whole sequence I did around demand generation and I had sort of forgotten I even wrote it. And there was a whole series around it and it was a pretty good point of view. But I, at some point, I just sort of shoved it in the back of the closet and moved on to something else, you know, probably never gave it enough traction, even enough time. So maybe step five well, should be rinse and repeat. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I almost kind of, I almost felt like it kind of goes back to step one. The reason I started with assess in the idea of like the seven elements was like, I wanted to kind of put it in your mind of what you're trying to get to under the belief that, you know, as you're building it in steps three and four, hopefully you'll go back to that tool as you're going. You know, and same at step five, you kind of go back to it. And I, and I like what you said. I was like, I may have to update that because it doesn't, adoption's not on there. Maybe it has to be eight elements, which I hate even numbers. Are, they're terrible for reasons, but I had to cut one out. <laughs> All right. We'll put a bow on this episode. <laughs> well, you got your steps on. You got more than five. You probably got 50. So I, uh, I uh, hopefully, you know, you're uh, now energized to tackle the rest of the day. Yeah. Well, if you're going to be a successful firm, you have to have a point of view that stands out. That's why this is so relevant. And if you can't go around your firm and ask people, who's our ideal client? What are their issues? And what is our point of view on solving them? You have some work to do. Yep. Wise words of wisdom. All right. Talk to you next week, man. See you, buddy. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.